and, and uh, emotion. And just let God capture us. Uh, and it's a good thing to do. Okay, well, we're, we're in Luke again. We're Luke, uh, we're traveling through this uh, section that begins in chapter 4 and wraps up in chapter 9. And this is the Galilean ministry. All right? And it's a, it's a, it's a distinct section. After that, uh, in chapter 9, at the end of chapter 9, the story's going to shift, and it becomes one long travel story for the next 10 chapters. 9 through 19 are all on the road to Jerusalem, the journey to Jerusalem. So here in chapters 4 through 9... It serves uh, three purposes. I mean, there's, there are probably more that you could add to this, but three primary purposes that this section serves for us in, in, in Luke's telling of the life of Jesus. And the first thing is that it, it establishes the identity of Jesus. It establishes Jesus' identity as the Son of God, and we talked about this last week, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Fully God, fully man. Okay, and the, this section, chapters 4 through 9, it, it begins, it really begins uh, a little in chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism. That's when his ministry really starts. And there's a, a proclamation that is made from heaven on Jesus' life. This is my son. You are my son. It's, it's, got, it's the father talking to Jesus. You are my son. With you I am well pleased. So this is a pivotal moment in Jesus' life. A lot of people speculate and kind of uh, wonder and theorize how much did Jesus know about his identity as he was growing up? What kind of view of himself did he have? Um, and whatever you think about that, you know, we see this little story when he's 12, he says, I must be in my father's house. And whatever you think about that, at his baptism, he knew for a fact. He knew f- direct from the voice of the father, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. Okay? And so, the first person that Jesus' identity is confirmed to is Jesus. It is you. You are my son. It gets confirmed among his followers, among the crowds, and then there's all different, um, you know, speculations as to who this might be. Some say it's Elijah. Some say it's John the Baptist. Uh, Herod is wondering who this is. John the Baptist himself is wondering, are you really him? And at the end of this section, in chapter 9, uh, Jesus hears from Peter's mouth, you are the Christ of God. Okay, so it's at that point where his identity is fully established. And then another voice comes from heaven at the transfiguration and says, this is my son, listen to him. So in the baptism, the voice of the Father is speaking to Jesus. In the transfiguration, he's speaking to Jesus, but he's really saying it for the people around him. Listen, you can be sure, this is my son. Now, do what he says. He knows how it's done. He knows he always does the right thing. He is my son. The other thing that uh, is going on in this section is that the, the nature of Jesus' ministry is being demonstrated. Okay? What he came to do, the extent of his power... The nature of his mission uh, is, being, is being fleshed out. Okay? He comes to bring salvation, 
But we see all the different ways, all the different facets that that's true. Okay? He comes to drive out demons. He comes to proclaim good news to those hearts that are desperate. He comes to heal physical ailments. Okay? And so this section is really establishing for us the, the, the primary nature and mission of Jesus. Okay? So who He is, what He came to do. And then third, it serves as a... It helps us identify who are the followers of Jesus and who are the opponents of Jesus. Obviously, the demonic forces oppose Him at every turn. But also the, uh, the unfaithful Jewish community, the scribes and Pharisees and those that uh, reject him. Okay. Those are his opponents. His followers begin to emerge. The community that Jesus is forming around his purpose uh, gets clarified through this section. So at the beginning, he's calling Peter out of the boat. Peter and, and uh, Andrew, James and John, he calls them. And then he has crowds that are following and, and disciples. And halfway through the section, he identifies 12, and it says he names them apostles. And Luke likes this word apostles uh, more than the other uh, gospel writers. And it, it makes sense why. Because Luke is telling a story of, it's a two-part story, what Jesus did and said, and then how he sent out his apostles to do and say those very same things. So right when he, when he identifies the twelve in chapter 6, it says he called them apostles, sent ones. That's what apostles mean. And Luke's like, Luke likes to use that term. And so in this section, the twelve are, are called and identified, and then they're commissioned and sent out. Okay, And the, the section ends with... Um, they have gone out some, and they've, they've experienced some victory... And Jesus brings them back and he clarifies, all right, now where all this is headed is to the cross. Um, so those are the three things that are happening, the three main things that are happening in this section. Jesus' identity is being established. The nature of his ministry is, is coming to light. And uh, his, his followers and opponents are, are being ferreted out. Okay? And uh, all right. So let's go to chapter 7. I just want to talk through a few of these stories. Spend some time with a, a few of them, and uh, hopefully the, the Spirit will speak to our hearts this morning. Uh, let's pray. I, I want to pray before we really dig in here. Father, thank you for this uh, book. Thank you for the, the testimony of the things that you did and said while you were in the earth. And I pray that you would bring it to life for us, that our hearts would be full of your Holy Spirit, and that your power would be here on us, uh, that we would receive a commission, that we would see this, and that we would see uh, the life that you have uh, set before us, the good works that you have prepared for us to walk in. In Jesus' name, amen. So at the end of chapter 6, it's the end of the Sermon on the Level Place which is in many ways a, a parallel to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. It's condensed. It has a, a few different elements. But this is where this section, it's really in the middle of chapter 4 through 9. And it really turns. And here's what Jesus says. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? 
Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Okay, so there's a similar parable here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. But Luke adds this little element. He is like a man who dug deep and built the foundation on the rock. Right? And Luke is writing his gospel. Why? So that we would have certainty according to the things that we've been taught. So he adds this thing here. Now listen, when you hear these words of mine and you do them, what you're doing is you are digging down and you are saying, this is where I'm going to build my house. And I hope that all of us can receive this as a, as a challenge as we're working through this book. Dig deep. And don't stop digging until you hit rock. And then build your house there. Amen? All right. So he begins to shift from, here is what my ministry is like. Here's the nature of salvation that I've come to bring. Here's the miraculous power that I've been anointed with. Now, it's more than that. I'm calling people to participate with me, to come and begin to do these things. Okay? If you're coming to me and calling me Lord, that should result in becoming, doing the same things that I'm doing. Okay. So, chapter 7 begins with two uh, great illustrations of, of the, the ministry of Jesus, the salvation that he has come to bring. This story of a centurion's servant is, is, is so rich. Uh, let's, let's walk through it a little bit. Now, he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people. He entered Capernaum, and a centurion had a servant. What's a centurion? It's a Roman officer who's over a number of people. Wasn't the head honcho, but he was sort of a middle manager, okay? And he had a servant who was sick at the point of death. So he's a Gentile, but he has a, he has a favorable relationship with the Jewish community. And he's, he's a little bit of a, I mean, he, he, he has donated uh, for the synagogue, okay? He went to the silent auction and, and bid a pretty high number on some of the things there. Uh, he went to the bake sale and bought some stuff. Uh, <laughs> But he, he, he doesn't want to presume to come to Jesus directly. So he asks some of his Jewish associates. He says, hey, will you all go and, and see if Jesus will come and have a look at my servant? And the Jews come, and they totally misrepresent this guy to Jesus. This man's pure in heart. He knows who Jesus is. He has a sense of his uh, power and authority. And the Jews come, and they say, hey, Jesus... This guy is worthy for you to come and, and heal his servant. Which if you've read anything up to this point, you should know that that's not the way to approach Jesus if you're in need of healing. Hey, I'm worthy of healing. What? <laughs> but they come and they misrepresent this guy to Jesus. Jesus goes anyway. There's something interesting about a centurion who wants to see me. I'm going to go see what this is about. So in spite of what the Jews say, in spite of their case uh, that they plead before him, he, he goes to see the centurion. And the centurion, he sent friends while Jesus was on the way, and he says, no, 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 call it off, call it off. No, no, I'm, I'm not worthy. This was a mistake. I should, no, don't worry about it. Don't bother yourself. Uh, I am not worthy. Do not trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I did not presume to come to you. 
Just say the word and let my servant be healed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Here's an example of real faith. And he says, I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So what he's saying is, I understand your office. I respect your authority. And I know that you have authority. So this is way below your pay grade, Jesus. Don't, don't worry, but just all you need to do is give a little word, and it's, it's going to be done. And this man's faith is remarkable. And I'm not exaggerating, because Jesus marveled at him. Jesus was absolutely flabbergasted with this guy. What? Where did he come from? Not even among my people have I found such faith. So when Jesus heard this thing, it says he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd, and this is always a a signal of a teaching moment, (laughs) or when he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So whenever he turns to the crowd or lifts up his eyes to the disciples, Jesus says, okay, I've seen something. You all need to come see this. Let's Let's have a teaching moment here. And he says, look at this guy's faith. I've not even found in Israel such faith. And of course, when they return, he's, he's well. So yes, it's a great healing, but this is a story about he's, he is a Gentile, uh, and he, he, is, he is one that really understands what faith really is. So after this, he, he raises a dead person to life. Okay, and this is interesting in Luke, because this is pretty early on. You know, in John, that's sort of the climax Miracle when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Well, he raises this guy pretty early on in, in his ministry. Okay? And this is, a, this is a story that's unique to Luke, raising this widow's son. Okay? This doesn't appear in the other Gospels. And again, this shows someone who is absolutely desperate at the end of her rope. Okay? She is a widow, so her husband has, has passed away. But also her son, her only son... This would have been the only hope that she had for protection and provision in life. He's been taken away. All right? And he goes and he has compassion on her. He raises her son. He touches, you know, he charges into the unclean area and he makes it clean. He charges toward death, not away from it. He charges toward illness and makes it clean, brings it to life. And he touches this stretcher that the, that the son is on. And he says, I tell you, arise. And he presents this son to the mother. Here you go. I have given you what you need. Because I had compassion on you. And it says, they glorified God. And they said, a great prophet has risen among us. Because this is almost exactly the same as, as something that Elijah did. And Jesus referenced the story with Elijah going to the widow at Zarephath. He referenced that back in chapter 4. And here he is doing this thing for this widow. And they say, whoa, this guy is the real deal. He's doing exactly the same things as Elijah. A great prophet has arisen among us. And then a report spreads all throughout. 
So here his identity is still not clear to everyone, but it's, it's obvious that there's something about this guy. And it's at this point that John sends his disciples to Jesus to say, are you really the one? Now, if you read the Gospel of John, he seems to indicate that, that, that John, right at the point of Jesus' baptism, was, sure, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, so if you read the Gospel of John, you get a little bit of a different picture than what we have in Luke, which is, John doesn't say anything at Jesus' baptism in Luke. John is baptizing, and then it says Jesus came and was baptized, but it doesn't fill that out. The next time we see John is he's sending his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really this guy? Are you really the one who is to come, or or shall we keep looking? And Jesus doesn't answer him. He just goes and he does a bunch of stuff. He says, go tell John (laughs) what you've seen, and you let him decide if this is truly the Messiah. And when you think about it, this is what God does for us. Are you really the Son of God? Well, what do we have? We have four stories about everything he did and said. We have four versions of that story. Very clear picture of what he did and said. What are we going to do with that? Truly, this is the Son of God. Amen? The the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, you decide for yourself whether or not that's the Messiah. (laughs) And in the Gospel of John, it would have said, the works themselves testify as to who I am. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. (laughs) So here we have... There are some people that are going to receive me, some people that are going to have nothing to do with me. But for those who will receive me, for those who who find that place of humility and desperation, uh, there's a blessing there. All right, another story unique to Luke is at this um, Pharisee's house in verse 36 of chapter 7. There's a dinner party going on. And there's a woman of the city who was a sinner. So this Pharisee's throwing a dinner party. This would have been like an ancient, uh, it's called a symposium. You see Socrates, he has these dinner parties and they discuss philosophical things and they recline at table and they you know, figure out all the deep questions of life. So this Pharisee, in this Greek culture, he's, hey, this guy, he knows some stuff. Let's, let's have a little dinner party. Let's have a little philosophical discussion here. Let's be a little bit uh, trendy. <laughs> So the Pharisee, uh, he, he brings Jesus into his home. We don't see it yet, but he has neglected. He wants to kind of appear hip and, and with the times, and, and, but he has neglected the, the hospitality, the bits of hospitality that are important to show a guest of honor. So he kind of throws this haphazard dinner party, but didn't do it all the way. Kind of wants to appear a certain way. Uh, but doesn't have the, the real substance behind it. And the woman of a city, who is a sinner, she learned that he was reclining at table, and these are low tables. You know, they're not have like lazy boys at the table or something. <laughs> these, are, these are low tables kind of on the ground, and so you would lean toward the table, and your feet are sort of out. 
So that's why it, it was confusing when I read, you know, when you read this first time, you're thinking of like, well, they're sitting in a chair. How did she come up behind him and did she crawl under the chair and start to do this? No, they're, they're sort of laying on the floor, reclining towards the table, and, and you know, everyone's their feet are away from the table, which seems like a good idea to me. Um, so he's reclining at table, and this woman comes in, and she brings an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now, these are all indications, that these are all expressions of hospitality, of honor for a guest in, in, in a household. And the host himself has neglected these things. And here comes this sinful woman offering him this hospitality. But more than that, I mean, think about what is this flask of ointment? And this would have been, this would have been a prostitute, okay? What is this ointment for? It's to try and beautify herself. Okay, to try and, and mask filth, to try, to try and appear uh, more beautiful. Okay. And she's taking that ointment, that fragrance, that you know, she, she's trying with futility to beautify herself. And she takes that and she, she anoints Jesus' feet with it. And I think we have here a picture of, of true worship. Where you take that thing and instead of try and use it to no avail to try and beautify yourself before God, <laughs> you lay that. And it's probably, it's probably one of the more valuable things that she, she owned as well. A fragrance like this would have been very expensive, very costly. And in other versions of the story in the different Gospels, the cost of the perfume is a real issue for some people. She just laid it right, she just broke it right open. <laughs> this could have been sold and we could have given the money to the poor. And... But no, she, she takes this thing and rather than try and make herself smell good, rather than try and cling to whatever she thought she had, whatever shred of value she thought she had in the world, she just cast it at Jesus' feet. And the Pharisee, he says to himself, hmm, I don't know if this guy's really a prophet. Because if he was a prophet, he would know who it is who's touching him. And Jesus said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And we have another parable here that's exclusive to Luke. But here's what Jesus is doing. <laughs> Simon says, oh, he's not a prophet. Because this is, this is a disaster. And then Jesus goes and proves that he really is a prophet. Because he sees through the thin veil of whatever Simon was trying to do. And he speaks right to Simon's heart. And says, listen, Simon, she's done way, she understands way more about what's going on than you do. You've got your, your little party that you're throwing for me. But you didn't really go all the way. You just thought you'd try and make yourself look good. She took this thing that she could use to try and make herself look good, but she knows it's, it's of no worth, ultimately. And she cast it at my feet. 
And she's been truly hospitable to me. You didn't do any of this stuff. You neglected it. And, and the, the parable spells out why this is the case. There are two people. They were debtors. One had a really big debt. One had a small debt. They both got canceled. Who's happier? It's the one with the bigger debt, obviously. And so what he's saying is, Simon, you think your debt's kind of small. You think you've got a lot of stuff going on, and you'd kind of like to top it off by having me in here and, and hear these things that I'm saying. She knows she's an enormous sinner. Nothing else needs to be said to her. She knows who she is, and she knows who I am. And she understands that her sins, though they are great, have been forgiven. You have this little... You're way too big in your own eyes, Simon. Okay? Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much, but he who has forgiven little loves little. So one of the points of the story is that it's, it's not to your advantage to try and put yourself together before you come to Jesus. It's, it, it works against what Jesus is all about. And the thing that you try and use to put yourself together to make yourself smell good, that's of no worth. Where that belongs is at the feet of Jesus. Amen? It's a good story. Thank you, Luke, for uh, including that for us. Chapter 8 deals a lot with uh, the response to Jesus, response to the good news, response to the word. It opens with the parable of the sower. Actually, it opens up with, and it mentions these women who are faithful to uh, Jesus, who begin to follow him, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, uh, who was in Herod's household, part of Herod's um, service staff, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. It's a great little detail that Luke gives us, and it's, it's a picture of the, the forming community of God. All different people, male and female, from all different places. We can go back and look at the, the disciples. They were, they were very different from each other, politically, economically. Uh, they had all sorts of different things going on. And here Jesus is pulling them together, and they're, they're united by the fact that they're following him. They're not united by anything else. It's a diverse, diverse group of people. Okay, and it was, it was pretty radical in those days that a, that, a, that a team of women was included in this group. Okay, now I don't think Luke is what we would call a feminist. But he's giving us some important information there. In the community of God, there are roles that, that need to be played by everyone. There are valuable roles that need to be played by everyone. And those roles are not defined by society. They're defined by Jesus. They're defined by the kingdom. So then he tells the parable of the sower. And this appears in uh, two of the other gospels. You know, this is one of the more famous parables. But what it's about, in, in Luke, where he, where he puts it, He's showing his disciples that, listen, some people are going to get it and some people aren't. You need to be careful how you hear, how you're receiving my word. 
There are four scenarios in which the, the, the seed is sown, four different soils. One, the birds of the air come down and snatch the seed. One is along the path and it got trampled. Uh, no, that's the one that the birds, yeah, it gets trampled and then the birds come and devour it. Some fell on the rock, but it has shallow soil. And as it grows up, it, it withers. Some fell among thorns. And then some fell into good soil. And those two, you know, th- two out of the four, you could say, are a little ambiguous. You can't really tell at first. Okay, one is obvious. The birds of the air snatched it. But the ones on the rock and the ones in the thorns, at first you can't tell what's going to happen. But time reveals it. Okay, so this is important at this point in the story. There are some here, you're going to fall away in time of testing. There are some here, in my broader group of disciples, who are not going to want to leave the cares of the world, to leave those behind to follow me. Um, Then they, let's see. So at this point, um, the disciples, who Jesus' people really are, begin to to clarify more and more in the story. Uh, His mother and her brothers came to him. They could not reach him. And he said, listen, my family, my mother and brothers are the ones who hear the word of God and do it. I'm forming a family. And the thing that unites us is not even blood relation. It's hearing the word of God and doing it. So then he goes across the lake. He goes all the way, and this is kind of a, a, a foretelling of, his, of, of the, the ministry to the Gentiles. He goes way far away, all the way to the other side of the lake, the country of the Gerasenes which is opposite Galilee. (laughs) And here is this man who has demons. And this is a famous story. He comes out, he's naked, he's crazy, he's breaking chains that that people... I mean, he is just about as bad as it gets. There's not one demon, there's legion demons. And Jesus casts these out into the swine. And... One of the things I love about Luke is that he seems to focus a lot on what people do or what Jesus tells people to do right after the, <laughs> the healing. Right? We don't spend so much time talking about the healing. It's like, all right, boom, healed. Now, here's what you need to do. Okay? And Luke is, this, is what, this is the story Luke is telling. Jesus is coming to proclaim the good news, to give sight to the blind. But he's also calling disciples. To himself. And some people are going to get it, and some people are not. They might hear it, they might receive it, but ultimately Jesus is calling disciples to, to come with him. Why? To go to the cross, to go to Jerusalem, to be with him in his, in his time of, of suffering. 
Okay. Chapter 9. Oh, so no, at the end of the, at the, in verse 39 of chapter 8. Of verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now, this was a Gentile area. I mean, this was way, this was off the beaten path. And here, uh, really, is, is Jesus saying, listen, Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's what I came to do. All the way across the lake, opposite Galilee, this is what I came to do. I'm freeing this man, I'm sending him now to go and declare the good news. All right, let's go to chapter 9, or else we're going to run out of time. And this chapter is really uh, a very important chapter in this book, uh, a very important time in the life of Jesus. Okay, we have the transfiguration, uh, but the, the chapter opens up with, he calls the twelve together, and he gives them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So in other words, he's sending them out to do exactly the things that he himself has been doing. And he gives them power and authority. These are important words. Authority, you could say, is the badge, (laughs) and power is the gun. So authority is the the right, the office, the legal status. And power is the ability to carry out what needs to be done. Okay? So this is what he gives to his disciples. And Jesus received authority where? When his father said, this is my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You are my son. You have authority. And he received power when the Holy Spirit came upon him. And so they belong to him, and now he is giving them to his disciples power and authority. And he says to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. So this is interesting, because Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor, but now he's sending out his disciples and saying, Stay poor. <laughs> Because if you're following me, you have everything you need. This mission does not require anything you came in with. You can leave that at the door. I have anointed you with power and authority. Now go. Now, he's not saying money's bad, and he's not saying it's bad to have uh, more than one tunic. I hope that we all have you know, more than one tunic in our lives. Uh, it's a good thing. Nor is he saying that, you know, to be a serious follower of Jesus, you have to take a vow of poverty. But there's something to be, there's something to be said for, yes, we do live lives of poverty. When we follow Jesus, we abandon, we forsake everything. And anything that happens as a result of following Jesus, anything that happens as a result of him sending us out and commissioning us, It's all because of the power and authority that he has anointed us with by the Holy Spirit. There's nothing else that this work needs. Okay? 
Now Herod, he hears about Jesus. And again, everyone is, is kind of wondering who he is. Jesus uh, tests his disciples. The 5,000 people come to him. He has already given them power and authority, and so he says, give them something to eat. <laughs> and they say, you just told us not to take anything with us. All we have is five loaves and two fish. <laughs> and so he, he takes it and he multiplies it. And this is an important detail. He gives it to the disciples to set before the crowd. We'll revisit this idea when, when Jesus teaches on prayer. You're right. You don't have anything to set before them. So let me have what you, what you got. Now, you go, you give that to the people. There's a man, he says when he's teaching on prayer, there's a man who comes before you in the middle of the night, and you don't, he, he needs something. You don't have anything to set before him. Well, go to your friend who has what you need. Get what you need. Now go give it to your friend. This is how Jesus works with us. You're right. We don't have anything. But we have everything because we have Jesus. And he can do it. He can, he can provide what we need. And if he tells us to go feed them, he's going to do it. If he gives us a ministry, if he gives us someone to love, of course we can't do it. But he has sent us, and he is going to do it through us. And he's, he's, he's with us. Amen? So this is one of the first assignments that he gives them, his disciples, his apostles. And uh, they're learning some important things. You know, nothing that we, nothing that we think we can do, you know, that, that's right. <laughs> we can't do this. We don't have anything. Oh, yeah, but we have Jesus. And just before, uh, in chapter 8, they had gone across the lake, and this, this faith, he says, where is your faith? Because the storm begins to come, and they forget, oh, yeah, we have Jesus. And he wakes up, and he says, this is nothing. And he calms the, the sea. And they still don't get it. Now, in verse 18, as it happened is that he was praying alone. And remember, Luke always, he, he likes to highlight this for us. Jesus praying. As he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God, or the Messiah of God. So now, among his closest followers, his identity is certain. His identity is known. And he says, don't tell anyone. And the reason he does that is because it doesn't make sense without the whole story. Because if you go and tell people he's the Messiah, you're just going to get a bunch of people banging down your door in order for them to do something for you. <laughs> but he says, no, don't tell anyone. We're going to the cross. Once I've been crucified and raised, 
then you'll, then, then you'll be able to proclaim, yes, this is the Messiah, and here's how he lived. Okay, so he said, don't tell this to anyone. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So right after he, he hears from his disciples their assurance of who he is, he says, okay, now let me take, let me take the veil off. Let me uncover my plan. I'm going to be rejected and killed, and on the third day I'm going to be raised. He doesn't end there. He says, and if you're going to come after me, deny, let, let him deny himself and take up his cross, and Luke adds the word daily. Oh. <laughs> Not in a single act of triumphant self-sacrifice, but in a daily way. Okay, Daily. And Luke comes back to this word a lot in, in Acts. Day to day, they were attending the hemp. Day to day, they were devoting themselves. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So a, a great summary of everything that we've been looking at in his life. If you think that you have something, you don't have anything. And if you know you have nothing, you've got everything you need. All right, so then he brings his three closest, and he goes up again to pray on the mountain. And as he was praying, it says, the appearance of his face was altered. This is verse 29. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. And the word is exodus. He spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Deliverer, Savior. Come to lead his people out of bondage. But how is he doing it? He's going to the cross. And going to Jerusalem, when it says that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, he set his face at the, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And that's where he sets his face from this point on. The voice of the Father comes again. It says, this is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. Listen, He's going to the cross because He knows how it's done. He knows how to bring salvation. He knows the cost of all this forgiveness of sins that's going on. It's the cost of His own blood. Who is it on earth that, that has authority for, to forgive sins? It's the Son of Man, because the Son of Man comes to give His life as a ransom for many, to spill His own blood, His perfect blood. Okay, so it's not like, it's not like He was printing money. I have come to print money and hand out hundreds to everyone. That's not what He was doing. He wasn't going and canceling, paying everyone's credit card bills. He was forgiving sins because he was spilling his own blood to do so. That was only possible because of where he was going to end up. Okay? And so in this story, uh, back in chapter 8, when he's going through the crowd, he's going to hear Jairus, heal Jairus' daughter, and the woman touches him, the woman with the, the issue of blood. Another story unique to Luke. He says, who touched me? The power went out from me. 
And there's something that, that I think is significant to that. Because, you know, I don't think Jesus like, got all charged up and was miracles. They came in at a great cost to himself. It says, by his stripes we have been healed. And so I think it hit him like a, a lightning bolt when the power went out from it. This, he is suffering to be able to heal people. He is shedding his own blood to, to be able to forgive people. Okay? So Satan would have him in the wilderness circumvent all of these acts of self-sacrifice in order to establish himself as the Son of Man and the Son of God. And he goes about his ministry laying his life down and saying, no, 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 no. The way that this is done, what the Son of God does is gives up his life, spills his own blood to bring salvation. To be a Savior, you are giving your own life up. But then he says, and so are you if you come and follow me. If you're going to participate in my act of salvation, my works of salvation and healing, you're going to have to leave everything. You're going to have to lay down your life. Deny what you think is your life so that you can receive what is actually your life. So then he says in verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying. They didn't get it yet. And this is why a chapter ago, he has said, be careful how you hear. Let this sink into your ears. Some people aren't going to be able to receive this. They're going to love salvation in the moment, but then... When time of testing comes, when, it time, when it's time to deny yourself and take up your cross, they're going to fall away. Or, when the riches of this life just are, are more appealing than the road to Jerusalem, they're going to have some good knowledge about Jesus, but no fruit is going to come of that. Okay, so here in his ministry, we are, uh, we're sorting through the hearts that are responding well, responding poorly. And we'll end with this here at the end of chapter 9. 51, verse 51. And the days drew near for him to be taken up. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now a lot of outlines just end the first chapter there, or, the, or the, this section there, the ministry in Galilee. But I think we've got to keep going to the end of chapter 9 to get the full picture of uh, tying up this, this section. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. The people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> Still don't really get uh, what's going on here. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So here at the beginning of the journey, he says, do you really understand where we're going? And are you really with me? You need to be willing to forsake everything. Okay, so last week we talked about the the desperation that Jesus is looking for. And he comes to proclaim good news to those who know that they have nothing and who are totally desperate for him. And here he's, now he, he is saying, all right, now that the good news has come to you, now what is your response? And we're shifting here from this, this idea of desperation to discipleship, true discipleship. It begins with desperation. It begins absolutely on the floor at the feet of Jesus with nothing that we can lay before him. But then once he heals us, once he brings us to himself, once he calls us by name, are we going to go down the road with him? Can we go to Jerusalem with him? Okay, And this is uh, where Luke's story shifts. Okay, so that's where we are in the book of Luke. And uh, I'll send out some instructions for reading. Uh, kind of how to how to dig into this next section uh, early early this next week. Um, so yeah, it's a call to uh, forsake everything. Those who truly hear the word and, and then do it and, and leave everything behind, those are the ones who are really finding life. So good news to the desperate, good news to the poor. But then you got to stay poor. As you follow him, you got to stay desperate. And you have to continually, daily, take up your cross and follow him. And you will find yourself on that road, giving up your life uh, so that others would live. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you have called us. Thank you that you have given us uh, the Holy Spirit, that you've given us everything that we need. Lord, that there are some. Uh, Lord, thank you for the, the, the power of the resurrection that we know on this other side, Lord, that, that anything that we lay down, any, any act of self-sacrifice, Lord, you are able to raise us up. And Lord, we trust you and thank you that uh, you have invited us to come with you and to join you in your purposes, Lord, to save uh, and to heal and to drive out demons. And God, I pray that our hearts would be willing to part Uh, with everything, willing to forsake everything, Uh, Lord, to stay uh, within fellowship with you and to stay in participation with you in your mission, Lord. Lord, we need help. We are weak. Uh, We are enticed by the world. We are burdened with many things. Uh, But Lord, we want to lay all of that at your feet and say, uh, Lord, everything that we need is in you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.